All right. Well, welcome everybody to our first episode of Monitor Keeping Podcast, uh, brought to you by the Morelia Python Radio Network. Uh, we're under the the NPR umbrella, so we'd like to thank those guys over there, Eric and Owen, uh, who started this and have recently begun a, a whole network of shows or helped begin that uh, network so that we can bring you reptile related content. So Kai, how are you doing? Yeah, not bad. Uh, thanks for uh, bringing me onto these ventures with you. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, we're just puzzling everything together right now. So it's all great seeing it all build up from the bottom. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's exciting, man. I almost, uh, almost don't know what to think yet and where to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess uh, just some what, – what we'd like to talk to everybody about is, um, you know, just what we want to bring to the table as far as this podcast goes. Um, I think uh, as far as the growth of the community, kind of uh, helping people out with their animals, um, you know, helping people, but in at the end of the day, helping these animals out really for the long run um, and uh, really just kind of embracing everybody with information and um, sharing things back and forth and trying to keep this network kind of alive within this podcast. I know there's not really um a podcast strictly for monitor lizards so this one would be pretty good to introduce to our normal community and industry and everything like that absolutely and for those of you that don't know me my name's alan stevens um so <laughs> we're doing what we can here and the truth is uh in my own opinion and mine you know i don't have a a lot of experience or huge background um, as some of the other players out in this field do, but I'm hoping along with bringing information to the people out there about monitor lizards uh, to learn myself and to get a good grasp of knowledge and to gain um, some experience through listening to other people, hopefully in the, the, uh, event that I don't have to go through some of the mistakes, I think, for the main part, that uh, some people have already made. And hopefully we can also get that out to the other people wanting to keep monitors or that are currently keeping monitors. But uh, I guess we'll start. Kai, what are you uh, What are you currently doing? What are you working with? Um, as, uh, as you know, some of you guys may know, um, I'm known for a lot of the mangrove monitor lizard stuff. Um, uh, it's my... I guess my, my go-to as far as what I like in a lizard, um, but what also accommodates me to um, size. I, I really got into monitor lizards with a typical water monitor. You know, um, growing up, just everybody loving Salvadors and just what they're known for, the intelligence, you know, the crazy size. But realistically, I couldn't really keep that stuff. So um, I'm working with uh, some of the smaller and medium size monitor lizards yeah where they're not too big i would consider three to four foot lizards uh good enough for me as far as size wise so i mostly work with uh, mangroves i have quite a bit i would say currently roughly around a dozen um and that's uh, a few localities a few different types 
not all of them are the same. Um, even within the same locality, there's a, a few different looks. So, um, and it's that's been really intriguing for me as far as uh, how how I guess diverse they are. Um, yeah, and uh, the Indo species for one, but just um, you know, going all the way to Australia and even some of the invasive species that are like um, in Guam and and the Philippines and such like that. They're just uh, really, uh, really cool to study. They're all different on every single island, even on parts of the same island. They're all a little different. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a very tricky, more so sometimes even confusing just to study them. But to me, it's worth it once you kind of figure stuff out and you put stuff together with these monitor lizards that I'm working with. Um, they're kind of all lumped together as mangrove monitors, but when you literally look at them and get an mm -hmm. idea of what they are, I would say they are uh, among like water monitors or white throats up and down, or even non-monitors, very diverse every single time they come in, just a little bit different than the last one. And yeah, um, and then I also have uh, Kimberly rock monitors as well. I do have a couple other odds and ends as monitor lizards, but uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be keeping them all or everything like that. I just, you know, just have like a, other random dwarf monitors and and like random flavies and stuff like that. But yeah, I'd really, really pay attention and keep on with the breeding as far as my current projects are just mangroves and Kimberleys right now. And uh, you mentioned uh, invasive species on Guam. I didn't know they had uh, any monitors over there. I didn't know that was a problem they were dealing with. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, um, I guess it's a big thing. They they consider them pests and they eat them. Now, you know, I I would love to do some type of, uh, I guess, more research and dedication to the species as far as like give back to the animals in the wild. But man, they're like pigeons. They're kind of yeah. just everywhere. And um, so me advocating for them isn't even gonna doesn't really i mean it's not it's unnecessary just because you know they're uh quite prolific and just from what they are even a single animal um i've been able to prove that uh mangrove monitors i mean i think i guess it's labeled under all monitors but mangrove monitors are parthenogenic so that's also another really uh interesting part of my projects that i have going on and uh, a few of them just lay just because you know not even not even breeding so um yeah that part right there is survival and and um durability of these lizards and being able to island hop and stuff like that possibly from you know tsunamis and storms and getting to different areas yeah i say spreads out the the diversity <clears throat> no, not, i don't really know how they got to guam um I have friends that have been stationed there and they send me pictures. So that's really only what I know. And then also another gentleman, I truthfully forget his name, um, but I followed him from iNaturalist and he would post, he would work on the farms there and he would remove mangrove monitors that were pests and uh, essentially eradicate them. Um, you know, I talked to him, figured out what was in their gut content when he dispose of them and stuff like that or got rid of them wow and yeah yeah just uh yeah my my research has gone pretty 
extent, um, you know, not just trying to figure out humidity and temperatures and stuff like that, or even just the look of stuff, but um, just to the core of the lizards on the island for the people and, you know, just things like that, because the people know more than more than anybody, you know? Right. And um, that's even if it's uh, even if they're lizards on a meat market, you're going to get some information from that guy, you know? And, uh, Absolutely, that's yeah. business for them, so they're gonna know some things about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, dealing with people like that, or actually knowing Indonesian people or people from the islands over there, um, has kind of helped me put a a look of a lizard to a locality. But I've even been tricked because you know you get pictures of a mangrove monitor as a baby, and then one as a sub adult. And then one as an adult, and they all look completely different. Even it can be the same animal. It'll just be a totally different look. And so you then have to puzzle even, you have more pieces to the puzzle to plug into. And some stuff just sits there, not really being added to anything. Um, and and in, in, my ma- in my brain, I basically have a chart, you know, of just lizards and islands and names of stuff. And I try to really basically put a pin to a certain island with the type of animal that I've come across or seen pictures right. of or yeah, things like that. It's awesome, honestly, because the, we still have those coming into the country. So without somebody doing that kind of work, I, I know for years seeing them on tables and whatnot, you just, yeah. like you said, it's a mangrove monitor. If it's a little right. bigger with a blue tail, it's a, it's a, you know, blue tail Dorianus or uh, right. trying to figure out. There's, there's even, um, you know, there's a, a coined name and it's uh, it's just a an Indonesian type of mangrove monitor with a blue tongue and uh, slightly bigger than the normal typical Solomon Island types. Mm-hmm. And these guys are a lot bigger and have a more bold, like a bulkier head. Not exactly like Dorianus's nose, but almost. And so they're coined as like Dorindicus, and essentially it's like a, a look of both. And that's another another one that is uh, very variable when they come in. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I have to even wonder to some degree if some of these um, animals that might be considered part of the uh, Timorensis family are in fact yeah. closer to... and stuff like that. Well, even just um, possibly Scolaris. But uh, just some of this, these little islands, you know, what do they actually contain? What are we yeah. actually looking at? And yeah. just because it's small doesn't mean it's in that Timor family, but possibly, you know, a uh, right. like a, a west side of the island and the east side of the island and the south of part of it can look way different. Just right. um, it's just uh, just how it is. Yeah, I couldn't really explain to you. Maybe it's just the biodiversity from each place that just makes the animal look different. You know, yeah. Um, and um, it just adds to the animal. So, um, but I'm not. I'm not a scientist. I just, yeah. You know, it's just. Uh, <laughs> it's just. It's just the truth. When when we're looking on one island, it could just look way different from side to side of each of the island. So, um, you know, uh, your Timorensis and the Offenbergs and a few other species that come in all under those type of animals. Um, man, they're all lumped together as well too. And who really knows about what else is um, right 
available out there are i mean just the looks you know right um there's uh kisara kisara island timor timorensis as well right those are awesome yeah (laughs) that's the yeah that's the 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 leopard timbers right right um and uh you know there's a there's a few more that randomly come in the reddish timbers with the little yellow spots on it Um, right i think you've seen that one right and um so you know through the years we hope that we have the right information and what we're spreading is right but to be honest um sometimes it's what what's just at our feet from that i mean it could be he could be just an importer or um uh, a, a flipper or just someone spreading information you know without right. even really having the truth behind it um i mean and i think some places that import and you know actual exporters and importers that are collecting and poaching and stuff like that like that end of it um you know they lie about where uh an animal's possible origins are just to keep it a secret for themselves and so you know maybe they just say something more vague rather than giving the precise location you know absolutely i know we do the same thing here with uh, just the whole uh what the the gray banded king snakes and and whatnot you know right good luck if you're getting that that true locality where they were found out of those guys so (laughs) right yeah unless like you were able to really track it down or or you went out there yourself and found it there okay then you put stuff together but until until then you're really just uh you're at the mercy of what someone told you um and that's it sucks but you know then there's people that are actually putting out good information um even myself uh with the mangroves i still can't be like oh this is a biak or this is a sarong because bro i don't know you know right i'm just someone (laughs) someone might have told me and you know um I, i may be good but i I'm not, you know, like a hundred percent of dang, this is this locality, this is this locality, and this is this locality. It's just I'm just saying a vague thing like Indonesian, because it kind of covers a, a a range of monitor lizards in that area. And then, you know, Solomon Island are much further away on the other side of um Papua New Guinea. And so, you know, those animals look different. They have a, a pink tongue rather than having right. a blue tongue like the Indonesians do. And then there's even monitors, mangrove monitors in Australia. And in between those waterways and those bridge gaps between the two main main areas, which is Papua New Guinea, and then just the waterways away to Australia. So that northern point. Um, and yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> but you've also had quite a bit of success with this species. I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I would say the first first couple of years is just learning. Um, I mean, okay, yeah, I've I've been keeping the species, but failing for years. So you know, <laughs> five five plus years. I mean, well, how what I mean by failing is not just uh, improperly introducing them, killing animals, possibly injuring animals. I consider all those kind of fails, but even like um, not keeping the scales right. You know, um, just uh, wounds, burns that, dude, I, I, I don't know how I could have prevented those at that time. I, d- I didn't know what I was doing because I was I was in, more inexperienced, I'd say, you know, yeah. even if I was keeping for a long time already. Like, right. um, you don't really know a species until 
man, you've either killed it or put it through its life cycles, you know, like you don't know right. nothing. And so, um, and, um, I've been able to have a bunch of females, um, go through a few males and, you know, the, luckily the females that I do have, um, even without breeding lay fertile clutches. So I mean, I was able to hatch those first, raise some of those and then put them back to either the mom or other females to get clutches out of. Um, I've had multiple mangrove monitors lay without breeding. So now with that, are you getting both sexes? Are you getting males and females in that situation? Uh, I haven't had any girls yet with the partho situation, but hmm. after breed after breeding, both sexes. Okay. So I've only yeah, been getting males in in the partho clutches. Um, other people have been reporting females as well. I think like Jim Heck or um, John at, at East Bay as well because okay. he, he has his uh, water monitors shoot out eggs all the time. And he told me that some of his were females when I was talking to him at one of the shows once. So, okay. Um, for me, they've all come out male so far. I've only had, let's say, half a dozen, give or take. Um, some don't really make it too far out the egg. They'll hatch or come right to about hatching. I've had a few that um, pip and die or come out and die. I've only been able to raise um, a couple, like okay. three, you know, four, three or four. Yeah. And you're referring to just the partho clutches. Just the partho clutches. Yeah. 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 Um, so they're, I'd say a little bit weaker. The eggs, the eggs, I, I mean, I guess they kind of come from nothing, you know? And so, um, you know, the, the female does a lot and I'm not sure what the sequences are that she's actually doing, but, um, it's essentially just, uh, that egg taking months to actually vein up sometimes two to three months before I really see veins, you know, like taking it sweet time. Right. Sometimes I'll see veins within a month already couple weeks something like that or even the egg ring at the top but that um, actually uh that happened with the sand monitor clutch I, half the eggs i saw veins but they you know the other half i wasn't seeing them right away and they looked good and i think a good solid month went by and uh until i started actually seeing those yeah and, so so you know um man uh for as far as anybody keeping monitor lizards um, when you get eggs, just put them in the cooker, regardless, <laughs> you male or not, because there's a possible chance of parthenogenic. All right. And sometimes people gauge the fertility of the egg or whatever right off the bat by looking for veins and stuff. And you really have to wait. So if the egg, lo egg looks good or, you know, even if it looks somewhat good, just throw it in there. And until it turns black and moldy and crusted up, then then you toss it out right but, yeah I, I i have so many people that come to me and tell me they have some female mangrove monitor and they throw away the eggs every time because they don't have a male and i, I i'm not going to tell them that every fertile every egg that they get is fertile but in the 50 eggs or 20 eggs or whatever that they had i would say one or two at least would be fertile you know just the, yeah. the chances that i've seen the numbers that i've seen as far as what my mangroves have done other people's mangroves have, i've seen done and so um 
you know, incubate, incubate everything. That is what I do. <laughs> yeah, incubate everything. everything goes in there till the wheels fall off. <clears throat> yeah. And, and then, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, and then maybe a few days until I get it through my head that they're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They got to be sitting in a in another container by itself just to see if it's just, all right. <laughs> right. Like a 0.2% chance of life or something. <laughs> but I still got my fingers crossed, though, for you. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's like a real light, and it sucks to get turned off, but when you have an egg... And regardless of whether it looks for it or not, and then you see like the mold set in and it's all hard and it's crinkling the right way or the wrong way. And, um, you know, it's like that light dies. It's like, oh, man, it's, it's, yeah. not, it's not good. And then you just <laughs> you take a deep breath and move on to the next thing. But, man, I've had to brush some of that off quite a bit this just this last six months alone. I hear uh, you. Yeah, yeah. I have Kimberly Rock troubles just because... I, you know, have to pay much more attention to them and support them a little bit better than, than what I was. Um, and I, I think that helped out a lot with this recent thing that I just got. So I got um, a good clutch out of a female just a c- couple weeks ago or a week ago. And um, yeah, I was just doing a nest box before, no UV, um, just calcium D3 you know, a typical diet of insects and rodents and chicks and eggs and things like that. But um, they weren't bouncing back too well at all. They would actually not eat. I would try to put food in front of their face. Typically, a female would uh, hound food immediately right after. Those are great signs, you know. It's right. like, yeah. all right, I'm, I'm back into gear. I, I can, you know, eat and go through my normal day and basically survive and live and basically recoup as well but you know when they come out of uh nesting and they do look saggy they look like 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 hell but um you know if they don't start to eat and they start looking like they're going downhill they can easily drop and just kick the bucket you know so um i know all too well unfortunately (laughs) i don't don't want to have to lose lose any more females or any more animals and so i started using uvb and um even more calcium and then i also cut out any of the insects that i was using at the time yeah and so um i still use the grasshoppers a bit but no more crickets no more roaches no more mealworms it's just chicks mice quail eggs and grasshoppers and um uh, their support is a little bit easier on the bounce back, I think, just because the, uh, I don't know, it's the, the heavier food that I've been using or the, the stronger bone content within each food item. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, they don't, they only have to eat like two or three grasshoppers instead of eating like 15 crickets that they're not even going to really chase, you know. I do hate crickets. Yeah. I still yeah. use them, but man. Yeah, yeah, I still use them here and there too. I like I like to use them just to, as another diverse part of the diet. But I mean, they're horrible, right? And there's so many horrible things about them. <laughs> um, but um, and yeah, but now and, uh, you have some you have some juveniles also now that uh, from the first clutch, right? Right, and um, really just uh, 
Um, trying not to kill those. <laughs> yeah, trying to do those, do right by them. I think you know, you and I have been kicking, um, kicking facts and ideas and stuff like that back and forth, and um, uh, I guess to really simplify what, what we kind of been talking about for months, um, I've been really just giving my Kimberly more support, not just uh, a nest bin with a little amount of soil, but I've been using um, dense amounts of soil where it's uh, most sandy soil, probably anywhere from 8 to 12 inches deep, and it's heated. So um, as I'm keeping it moist, it basically creates a great saturation in the air instead of me having to spritz and spray it. Mm -hmm. um, what that was causing for my Kimberleys was just fungal infections, essentially. Just uh, I would um, have just issues with essentially wetting the cage too much and um, it wouldn't dry enough or the areas would stay, stay, stay moist and damp. And then that would get onto the scales and um, that was causing me some issues. Um, loss of tips of tails or some bumblefoot for a little bit. And yeah, yeah. Um, really, really trying to support them better. So I gave them much more dense humidity within the enclosure without having to spray it so much. Um, that also helped me out with nesting because girls would, are now nesting in the deep soil rather than using the nest bin. And I may just remove the nest bin altogether to give me more cage laying space. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to make that decision just yet until I see them failing more. So um, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, man. Um, it's been uh it's been pretty uh I would say nerve-wracking and kind of heartbreaking at the same time just because some things you can't fix right away. Um right. some things you you got to test stuff for a while and really you know put your theory to the test and kind of just uh work out all the little quirks, the changes that you're no longer you know, that you're going to be incorporating, and then the other stuff that you're no longer going to be doing, um, and then seeing if that works and sticking to it because you just can't be bouncing back and forth and stuff, you know. And so, um, right with ideas, you just kind of. For me, I've had to adjust moving to Southern California, and I've had to add more humidity because where I am now is much more drier than what I was before, and in the, in the Bay Area in san jose before it was much more humid because i get the bay breeze and i'm 20 30 minutes from shore but um here i'm an hour inland so um i'm not do near you, water at all do you think that if, you know you mentioned having the uh the larger um nesting areas or whole cage type of nesting and keeping that uh deep substrate in there to add to the humidity and uh in the cage do you think that it is also in part because you're living in a much drier area? And uh, I wonder, you know, I can't help but think that in a more humid area or by the bay where you were, if um, that humidity would be more available without that type of setup. Yeah, that makes sense. The, the humidity was essentially was available up yeah. there, you know, and just the fog that came in in the morning alone or. Um, that added to the normal just saturation in the air. Yeah. You know, every day. Um, and so, 
that from here i don't really get that at all i mean i might have a tiny fog but it's right. not dense at all and it's still dry where i look at the humidity and it's 20 30 maybe 40 percent on a really some of these bad days it was like 18 10 percent you know um yeah so it's real low and um even from i myself feel it as a person that it has asthmatic and i need more saturated air it's dry but um, I mean, relating to like my animals and stuff and, or my projects, like my incubator too, um, my incubator was drying out much faster than it was in the Bay. Um, in the Bay, I would have to replenish the soil maybe every four months closer to the last leg of incubation with the last year that I spent here, I basically had to revamp that soil every two months yeah or revamp the moisture within the within the incubator cup the water in the cup and then the what's at the base of the actual containers that hold the eggs right um, and so i've had to adjust for that and then now that i also have a fan to keep with uh having too many hot spots that also evaporates faster so i've had to accommodate for that too um and so i just put a slightly bigger water thing at the bottom um and um it's been helping out somewhat but um yeah i noticed uh you know eggs would dry out fast if i didn't have them in something more saturated with water to create humidity for them now maybe something we should touch on real quick in that is just uh i'm up in the northern california area you're down in the southern california area and although you know to the people that Hopefully we'll be listening to this. <laughs> um, California is a huge state. You know, if you kind of flipped it and put California on the East Coast, we would cover multiple states. Yeah. Um, so it's it's quite different over here. And right. uh, yeah, you're more towards a uh, high desert. I right. Believe, I'm, I'm not too far from it. Yeah. So I'm like, a, what would you say? The valley. Um, and so I'm not too far from the desert. Probably about right. 30 minutes to an hour. Um, I think to Hesperia and the Mojave before, it took me about uh, like an hour and a half ish, give or take, one forty five, an hour forty five to get to the Mojave. So, right. yeah, I'm not too far from there. Um, Which is an awesome area for herping. And yeah. We kind of talked about that in the past too. Um, but yeah, so down there in that desert, I know it's super dry. Uh, it gets hot. And I'm guessing it gets pretty cold in the winter as well. Yeah, it gets uh, down to the 30s and 40s. I think now, even almost, you know, into going, getting into March and April, um, where spring has already hit, the nights are still 40s. And now we're creeping into 50s, but they were still pretty chilly. The yeah. snow, the, the mountains that are behind me, which is the, uh, I think, part of the San, and, San Andreas Fault or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, those hills still have snow on top of them. So um, it's it's still chilly at nighttime, definitely, for sure. And then the daytime, it'll reach to the 70s right now. That's a that's yeah. a big trip. That's a big trip for me. It's a, the major drop every every night. Yeah. 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 Oh, I get that out <laughs> here. I'm, I'm in the uh, Sacramento area mainly. And, yeah, we get a ton of temperature swings. It can be you know, 110 in the summer. Um, we can get multiple weeks, something like that. And then 
um, we get our nights down in the, the low 30s, which was, you know, just last week. We we're still in the 30s. I think it's starting to warm up now. And um, I'm fortunately near the river. Um, there is some humidity, but it, you know, when it gets the a little American warm, River. Um, yeah. Or the Merced River. The uh, the American River. American River. Mm, that's a yeah. nice one. Yeah. But man, yeah. <laughs> you talked about allergies, too. In the springtime, um, I... <laughs> yeah, I'm essentially dying. I have to drink water just so I can keep up with the conversation. Yeah, my my throat. Yeah, and where I was just at, so I just drove to to Riverside to make a drop, and um, man, that was dry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just drinking water and using chapstick. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you got to think. You know, you're keeping uh, the the species you're keeping um, with all the adult uh, mangrove monitors you have that come from a place that is always humid or I wouldn't say always humid, but a lot more than the high desert. Right. Um, Definitely much more, you know, you're kind of, I guess that's going to be something that you always have to be conscious of and be aware of. Right. And uh, at first I wasn't, at first I was just just assuming whatever I had going on, would be fine right um but i started losing clutches or some random individual eggs and just uh um, cages even just getting much more bone dry faster than i would thought so the maintenance had to be much more uh, kept and you know just just the regular being in and out of the enclosure um right. which and some things were great but you know, not so much all, all, all together when you're you're really, really thinking about it. Like I am spending much more time with my animals, but you know the 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 fluctuation of humidity rather than just staying constant was is tough. So right. I had to put more soil back in the enclosures, um, put more nest bins in there, um, and so that would that would help out with me having to go in there and miss so much. Or more so, creating more wet spots than I needed to, um, yeah. and then yeah, that's that's for the Kimberleys and for the mangroves. The mangroves I don't keep wet at all. I just keep them with dense humidity. They get nest bins and they have some dirt. You know, um, that's mm-hmm. that's that's really that's really it. I don't I don't go full out and have a, a like um I don't know. I don't have you know like two feet of soil everywhere or something like that. I don't. I just I just have it designated in certain areas that are heated and and that's where they go and um, i'll spray the cages periodically or i'll pour pitchers of water into into areas and you know that'll that'll spike up my humidity you know but i don't want to do that a bunch of times in one day you know maybe like once a week i'm going to do that you know yeah yeah and you know while, while we're talking about some of this stuff and uh what you got going on i think it brings up uh, some of what we also wanted to cover through and in this podcast uh, and the ones to come is just how to adapt your husbandry for your area and where you live. Um, yeah. Specific to monitors because, you know, some- with the materials that you have too, you know, just right. What you got laying around and what you're able to do. Right. And I'm sure you've had it before, but people have asked, you know, what, uh, what substrate to use, but you're in Southern California, you're going to have the things that are pretty close to California. 
near you or for sale where someone over in, you could say Maine or somewhere else in the U S right. is going to have. Right. And yeah. so there's no specific um, blend. I think, I think that's why, you know, we can recommend to some people with some degree of safety as a base, you know, the play sand and uh, cocoa mix just right. because it's, it's a known product. And uh, right. That's what I use in, uh, in most of my nest bins. Now, my initial mix is not what I want. That's, that's the, the, the ratio. I mean, the ratio is what I want, but the actual consistency of the whole eco-earth and sand mixed together, that first look, it's not really what I want. It'll hold a little bit, but as that eco-earth, that raw material there, uh, the, the, the dust or whatever it is, as it breaks down even more and the fibers right. break down even more, um, with the sand, it creates this thing called sandy loam, and that's what I want. It's a that that product after the heat moisture has broken down all that to what's at the bottom, you know. Um, exactly, and that's what I want. So you know, I tried to figure out what that was for for years uh, back in the past when I first started keeping. Yeah, um, yeah, and you know, it was so elusive. With, what is a sandy loam? What what is it? You know, yeah. can you make it, or you can, you you know the the, I mean it's it's a good product if you were to f- try to find it in like a lumber yard or a rockery yard where yeah. they sell it by the square footage, but you're not always gonna find it. Um, you'll find some other manure type stuff or weird sand stuff or or gold track finds or something like that, but right. you're not gonna find this stuff and. Um, now it holds, um, I would say if it became dry, then you'll notice the difference. Um, it'll, it essentially doesn't hold anymore. So mm, the sand and, and soil or that mix is great, but if you're not adding water and heat to it and it creates this whole breakdown and all that such like that, then you know you're, you're going to be using it wrong um and it'll just it'll it'll be really dusty and for you and all that stuff like that so if you're not regularly turning this maybe you know every few weeks or you're going to check it pretty often shove your finger down there or dig a little bit and see the dense the density of moisture then it's not going to be too pleasant to use so um you know you want to make sure that it's mixed and kept up and maintained yeah um, some things I do to maintain it, not just add water, but you want to cover it with uh, some leaf litter or something like that. And it basically provides a protective layer, trapping the moisture in a little bit more, having a, essentially a slow release as as the leaves are on top of it, covering it. It's amazing um, how well that works, too. Yeah. Because you know? mm-hmm. the leaves will be bone brittle dry. But the soil is like, like you sprayed it, you know. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. And so, um, it's a uh, all this is all this is not. I mean, it's not new to the hobby. Um, leaf litter and just taking things from the outside and not 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 physically taking things, but taking a picture of what you see outside. Now, mm-hmm. um, most people see just what's right in front of them. And they see from the floor up. 
but most people aren't looking from the floor down. And um, that's where some of this, you know, where you're trying to picture how deep a nest bin goes and how think how far, you know, just their their escape microhabitat goes. Um, you know, like uh, we were talking about that whole flabby nest and the whole Goldie nest thing yeah. just not too long ago, right? And so yeah. that is much – I mean, that's way beyond what we're already thinking way beyond like so real quick that that just to explain that basically uh i forget exactly how deep it was but um went for miles yeah it was incredible system uh network i guess you could say of uh like nesting sites going within a circle and it's like a if you were to picture you know how um cars go up this cylindrical thing in the the whole um parking garage it's kind right. of like how I went down. Right. And, um, and uh, yeah, and you that know, was amazing to see. To mix in the information um, that has existed for a while now that uh, species such as like Acanthurus uh, are known for using these same nesting sites and um, basically going in right after a sand monitor and also laying their, their eggs in the same general area using the same, uh, entrance to the, uh, to the nesting site. I mean, like you said, there's a whole underground world that we don't see or paying attention to. Right. And um, we just don't see it. You know, it's, it's out of, out of sight, out of mind for some people. And, um, that's where we want to kind of, um, open kind of get people to see, or I guess open their, their, their seeing a little bit and, um, really kind of, just point out things that they would normally never look at, you know? Right. Um, and when building all of my enclosures now, I really don't think about, Oh, what am I going to use for logs? And what am I going to use for, you know, a waterfall or some type of water bin first? I really think about how I'm going to start the base. Yeah. Gonna, you know, hold well, is it going to be, is my, I call it a litter dam. Um, you know, it's just your lip that's going to keep the soil. How deep is that? Is that going to be waterproofed? Is it uh, bulk enough to hold um, a ton of soil and sand? So that's a lot of weight and pressure going against the walls. Is it uh, dense enough to keep from too much draft? So like thin plywood is not going to hold as well as uh, one-inch plywood. You get right. what I'm saying? So um, you know, just how how you think about the base from the foundation – and then as you're applying this to your enclosure, all right, um, my nest bin is now needs to be incorporated and my nesting area or my big ample amount of soil is going to be need to be incorporated first. Mm-hmm. And for me, I can have a little tiny water dish because I, I don't really care about a bunch of big water features. That's just me, though. And I have to worry about nesting first. Right. Um, and even if it's a juvenile or whatever it is, I kind of get them accustomed to it. I don't want to introduce a girl to nesting when she's two years old and dropping eggs. You know, you wanted to do it years in advance. So that way she knows what to do with soil, knows how to, you know, do everything. And so, um, yeah, you really have to think from the the ground up and then worry about other stuff. You will see that. Um, 
for the the people out there that are maybe um, having some success for the first time or coming up on it, you might not even know a uh, female might be ready to lay. Uh, as you watch them, you will actually see the, I guess, inexperience um, with that first clutch and that female. Uh, now, I've, I've had females go right in and take care of business. But like you said, I've had other ones. Um, like, what almost, are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, you know, they're throwing eggs here. Throw, I had a, uh, a Tristis female. It's like she laid one egg in all kinds of, in all different directions. And um, that threw me off because uh, honestly, I missed a few um, thinking that I found where she had laid. No, she had laid everywhere. And, uh, since then she's really tightened it up and they're all in the same area. But, um, yeah, I think, I think the animal itself needs a little experience with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, uh, it's my, my main thing is, uh, to get people accustomed to that. Now, um, how I keep babies is, is way different though. I keep them kind of bearish, uh, <laughs> a, couple, a couple little hides and yeah, they kind of dry out. Um, I don't really want to keep them wet. Um, right. And so I just have a little bit of soil, if anything, paper towels for the first month or so. And then I put them on a bunch of soil. And um, they're spending now, most of their time in between stuff, though, and like elevated hides and stuff like that. So, But you're also paying attention to them i'm i'm guessing a lot more closely than you yeah, you are yeah your adult. right um the adults like they're kind of they're kind of predictable the little guys i really got to make sure they're eating so what i'm doing is uh simplifying it for myself 100 percent. yeah I'm, i mean i may i'm gonna admit it i'm taking away some of these like fully decked out setups because i would not put newborn hatchlings in some fully decked out setup that's the <laughs> first thing that you can do um and it's just just for the sake of maintenance and keeping up the animal keeping up with the animal making sure it's eating as it's a newborn yeah it's uh you know you want to want to keep it in a smaller kind of kind of just a bare setup or simplified if anything now i still have like a tiny reed stack or i'll have piles of um piles of cork flats and i'll have some elevated hides and you know stuff to use on the wall but really i'm not having a ton of major hides in there they're easy to find if i need to find them but getting to food for them and everything like that isn't you know five feet away from them it's it's all yeah. kind of incorporated within that little corner of the cage that's only two feet you know um, that's how i raise babies i raise babies in kind of bare setups it's to build a, a trust with them. So what I made the mistake of when I first have gotten babies before is I put them in a big three to four foot cage as a baby and expect it to be tame or expect it to just be like uh, like bread and butter, like some of these water monitors or something like that, you know, um, right. where it's just like, oh man, it's this is, this is a piece of cake almost where these lizards, I gave them a ton of hides and all that stuff, and they they used it. They did. They definitely used them, and they they hid and they did what they normally naturally want to do, and that's just hide for most of the day. Humans are kind of dangerous, so if I'm around, they're not going to really be around, you know. And mm -hmm. yeah, 
I've noticed the same thing, and I keep babies very similarly, very bare. Um, I I also have noticed when the animals, specifically the babies, can see me. It seems to have uh, a lot of influence on them as far as watching me, being able to watch me, just move around the room, as opposed to uh, I have some different baby setups that are just top opening so that they can only see through the top. And I've noticed a a huge difference between the animals that are in the, you know, the glass fronts or whatnot. um, They can see you all the time. That can see me. Yeah, that can see me and watch me and see what I'm doing rather than the ones that I, you know, uh, have to enter through the top. Now I, I make that choice because I have spent hours and sometimes days, you know, uh, looking for lost individuals and small monitors are quick and fast. (laughs) And if you have multiple animals in a, in an enclosure, One's going to go one direction and the other's going to go the other direction. And, yeah. Uh, Better be yeah. able to close that door fast enough. Right. And yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Keeping, keeping my babies and keeping the adults. is just night. It's almost night and day. <laughs> yeah. Cause uh, I wouldn't keep the adults the way I keep the babies for sure. I wouldn't keep them drier or, you know, I'd give them a little bit more, but. Right. It's like um, it's like as an example uh, how chondro keepers kind of just keep a little twig for that that one green tree python, or um, how uh, like nerd for the water monitors they just use that that plastic hardwire cloth, you know, and it's yep. just folded up and it, or rolled up, and it's used as a basking thing, and they can climb on it, and um, it is simplified as heck, you know, but it just helps out a lot. Yeah. I also think that, you know, both you and I, we keep multiple animals and to Simplicity. do what you need to do in a day and get, just get through with the, the maintenance, you know, it's important um, in that situation to be able to get in, know what you're looking at. You don't have to go digging around too much for an animal. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't have to worry Stressed about them. It. Yeah. Right. Right. So I think it's important in some of these cases, uh, especially, but let's talk about, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no worries. Let's talk about, um, your, your grasshoppers for a second. Oh yeah. How, you know, this is, you know, about monitors, but they're an amazing food item. I can't breed them to save my life, (laughs) but, um, you know, uh, to break the science down, um, I just eat them and feed them. But you know, it's not really going into major detail about like what I do like on the every day because th- it's a lot to cover. But um, I really just okay. It sounds crazy, but what I do is I use my monitor husbandry and I apply it directly to the to the grasshoppers. So. I'm looking for optimal temperatures, not just what they are kind of liking or what I think they'll like, but I'm using temperatures that are up in 120s, 115, 110, you know, something like that. Um, And I am also making sure that my nest bins 
are heated. Mm -hmm. And so they are really just uh, directed and pinpointed to lay there instead of just scattering eggs. So by and design. So that, that soil consistency is is all, yeah, it's all just like how we put it to kind of predict where our lizards are going to lay and they typically lay there. These grasshoppers are doing the same thing. And, um, you know, um, there are other people that I, you know, I'm trying to help with this stuff and it's not as, uh, it's not as easy just because now, you know, I, even though I just kind of gave you like the golden ticket on tr trying to, how to breed them and stuff like that, the everyday consistency is, is different. And right. So that's, um, that's another committed part that you'd essentially have to take on. And if, if somebody couldn't do that and they were, you know, lagging on stuff or basically not putting their foot and an elbow into that shit, they're not going to really succeed. So, um, that's, that's the, after doing them for a couple years now and, um, really just trying to get a grasp of, of what I need to do on the day to day. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a lot harder than, than what I ever thought, you know? Um, now what was the drive for you to even start in this direction? Daniel Bennett. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, advocator for Savannah monitors, great scientist, herpetologist, um, did a lot for monitors in the academic end and back end and just, um, you know, advocating for Savannah monitors and, um, and fruit eating monitors, you know, the list goes on of what, whatever he's accomplished. Right. So, um, it was just conversing about what Savannah monitors ate in the wild. Um, and, you know, obviously they eat many things. It's not just grasshoppers, but an abundance of grasshoppers and especially when they are in migratory season or they are um, just uh, hatching out through the, the, the warming season coming up, they are eaten a lot by a lot of the animals. And, um, you know, I, I just, uh, I, I gathered quite a bit of information on what's inside a lot of monitors stomach in the wild. And so obviously I can't do them all. Some of them aren't, aren't feasible to do or too costly or things like that. But the grasshoppers were also a niche that no one else was doing. So um, I think some people were doing it on the, on the low and the back end or just a little bit for themselves, maybe just to try. Um, but I was uh, trying to really get them, I don't know, get them, get them going for, for monitor keepers for the hobby in, in the USA um and so you know my buddy dean some guy that i some guy that i knew from years and we basically went to rival ring high schools and he'd come into the shop that i worked at and stuff like that and we'd be on forums together um he met me at a show i think it was the sacramento show yeah and um <laughs> and uh he just stopped and he's like hey is that are you kai and i was like yeah yeah you remember me from back then and and um, he said that he basically had a couple grasshoppers and we're looking for more. And I went on the hunt for more. And we basically put all our efforts together from his end and from what I was able to gather and um, just 
just work together a hundred percent. You know, um, they were first just done at shows a little bit, nothing too crazy, maybe just a few hundred grasshoppers, but, um, now I produce a few thousand every month. So, um, and they are awesome feeders. My, my monitors, you know, I ended up feeding them off because, uh, as we talked about, you kind of know my, uh, my situation just with regular life and work. yeah 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 it's just the it's the time committed and so if you can't do Absolutely. it you just can't do it you know but that being said when i decided to feed them off those those animals went nuts for them absolutely loved them specifically yeah, those blue trees man they that's uh, uh <laughs> really why i love doing it it's um the trigger is 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 this it's crazy man right it's uh i i never expected it to be that way with uh with a bug um, I expected right. it to be that way with lizards a lot. I expected it to be that way with flighty birds, but um, never would I have seen my monitor lizard that's four or five feet chase a insect that's you know an insect, just right. just, just a bug. But it's the whole fluttering, the size, and just uh, the whole I, I guess you know the the enticingness with jumping around makes the monitors go nuts for them. Yeah. And um, yeah. So, and I, I, I love them. So I, I wouldn't, you know, if you don't have the, the time or whatever, I really wouldn't recommend anybody doing it. But, you know, if you're trying to feed your animal something different and you're tired of crickets or you're allergic to, to crickets and roach frass, um, you know, I, I am too. And so I can't do those things in high, high, high quantities. Um, so the grasshoppers have been night and day between all that and so it's been quite pleasant i don't really have too many um cons i would say you know other than them yeah. flying but uh, that's not that's I'm, I, I'm okay with that you know you hit on something uh, i think important too is just the fact that to some people uh i recommend anybody trying to keep a monitor or if you want to keep monitors in the future go ahead and start a roach colony now get familiar with it and get your numbers up uh, yeah save yourself some money you know right and to be able to control cost. yeah well to be able to control what your animal's eating and you know you know exactly what those feeders are fed and what's going into your animal um there's nothing better but like you said um allergies are a real thing uh there's quite a few people that um that i know and that i've heard of that really have an issue with uh the the allergies as it pertains to the uh, the dubia and other roaches and uh, fortunately i don't have that issue not yet uh hope it never comes but it is something to be aware of um you know i don't know how bad it got for you but from a few people i know it pretty much put them out you know it's like yeah be near them yeah yeah that's basically i can't really go into the room too much and i definitely can't inhale any of that like um like part partial frass or or you know just to to dig around in there and then to breathe any of that up but then also to touch myself touch my face touch my eyes i'm done yeah, yeah. can't do it yeah man. man and so uh the grasshoppers basically led me to be doing that i also did like death heads and um ivory roaches and hissers they're just they just grow too slow so right you know, I'm experiencing that now. I got, I got, um, like you said, death heads, ivories. Um, yeah, orange heads are a fast, another quicker grower, but right. they're 
their diet consists of partial protein much more than some of the other roaches. They're a true arm omnivore where um, they'll, 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 for me, when I keep orange heads, I have to feed them like the, my scraps from what I feed the monitors. Yeah. And um, that's what keeps them from nipping at their wings and it keeps their, their integrity. So, right. Well, yeah, yeah that was another, something I didn't food. notice uh, at first, and so I set them up just like I I would the other roaches, and yeah, I started seeing the uh, like you said the wings, um, and I didn't know that problem existed to be honest. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it, uh, it's a it's a thing where I guess they're lacking something and they nip each other's wings to get that. Yeah, so, yeah. Man, um, you know, I'm not gonna lie, um doing the grasshoppers has been man a, a, a work of uh i mean not not even like art but like it's um it's been giving me basically you know direction and kind of like um i'm, not, I'm trying to say the right word but um like empowering and you know really just giving me uh like a, a little bit of a purpose you know, just like a whole all of like survival and just paying, even just simply paying bills too, you know? Um, and, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, I, I never expected it to be that way where well, I thought I was just going to do a, a cage or two and, you know, you know, just sell it a couple here and there, but man, it's like the, what, what I'm getting at the end of the day, people tell me about their animals their parsons that were imported their blue trees that were imported that weren't eating and now they're eating um stubborn feeders you know and uh really the work that i'm able to give back to people with some of the grasshoppers and just things like that is a bit different i mean even if it's saying thank you for giving them grasshoppers so they don't have to deal with crickets no more you know exactly yeah that, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know my grasshoppers are i've had to deal a little bit with um, some shipping issues initially but you know now i mean they're they're a really hardy shipper they can ship through the winter time i ship them basically every week except for that jam week um and you know even then like the week afterwards they were they were fine and um so the consistency and durability with them and everything like that is is steady so like i have i had things where people were just getting roaches and the whole thousand lot or ten thousand lot would just be dead man and it sucked and it's just so much money down the drain and stress to have to deal with that and then the fact that you don't even have feeders no more you know right so, right uh, working on a more more durable feeder if you could just uh, kick your kick your monitor habit, you know, you could set up more grasshopper cages. And Yo, I know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I told myself I was like, you know, if I got rid of like three cages right now, and like simplified a little bit more, I can have all the room that I was needing, sort of. But yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna do that yet. I don't know. I mean, it's just because those those parts are still critical parts of my my whole thing. And, I couldn't, I couldn't be without cages. And I keep, I wish I can keep everybody together 24 um, seven, but I don't, I keep everybody separate. And um, so it, it does cost me some room, but it's better than having a, a bunch of animals that are, 
um, fighting and ripping each other up because that's what I got to deal with a lot. My, my mangroves, all the different types, whether female or male, are um, pretty cage defensive or they're pretty defensive overall. Have you noticed the same thing with babies that you've raised up? Do you treat uh, them any different? Yeah, no, the, the babies that I raise up are typically a lot better. Um, I may have the bull in, in the clutch where he is eating so much more. He's like a third bigger, you know, right. like all, all of a sudden. And then I'll pull that one out because obviously he doesn't even need to be in there anymore. Um, you know, and then I'll have to separate them. And just because I want the littlest one to definitely not have competition with that guy because then he'll never eat. So uh, I really play it by ear. Um, I try to keep them, you know, I try to keep most of the babies together if I could. And mm -hmm. uh, if anything, in groups of like three or fours. And that way they're all still to kind of together. And they're roughly the same size and or for sure the same same locality. Um, and then, yeah, that way I'm not mixed up just because they all look alike. Somewhere. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the flash. Or if you're not really paying attention, you're just kind of – they're all black with yellow dots. So, right. Yeah, it all looks the same. So where yeah. – where do you uh where do you want to go in the near future? What are some uh, I guess short term and long term goals you're you're kind of heading towards in your own collection? Uh, trying not to kill my monitors anymore. That's, <laughs> that's for sure. Number one goal. That's for sure, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, just getting better at it. Taking not I mean not taking them for granted for what they can do for me. Um, you know, trying to really focus on um understanding them more. Uh, than than what I think I already kind of know, you know. Right. Um, trying to be humble about the situation because I, I have I have a really dope collection, you know, and I have all my dream species with me, and um, I really don't need anything else much more. So you know, I want to take what has been put in front of me um, and uh, try to do the best at it, you know, and get um, the Kimberleys to really go and really do them where not just lucky and i'm actually you know it's consistent and um same thing with the mangroves where all right i'm getting to a point where i'm getting better it's getting more consistent and the clutches are coming much more regularly but i have some behavioral issues with some of the animals that are just they're non-cooperative you know mm -hmm. and, um and so Man, I, I don't know. Just to just to do, just to do the, the monitors well and consistent with where I'm at now, and and to get even better, you know. Um, that's hard. What about you though? I mean, you got. I know I haven't really like uh, put the spotlight on you too much, but you know you got a lot of projects too, man. I really don't know how you're able to do. What well, like you have like ten species of Varanus right now. Right. Oh man, I might. I might. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's and then you have not just a pair, but you have multiples of each species, and that's already a lot. And then on top of the patophis and the um, carpets and whatever, I think you have a retic or something like that. You posted a picture of right. Right. Got a pair of retics. I don't uh, know why you have those, but <laughs> but I'll let that go because they're small. <laughs> They're small for now. 
Yeah, don't know why you have those. Uh, they're, they're gorgeous. I'll tell you that much. They are they are really something else. And honestly, their attitudes um, since I since I obtained them, they're they've been nothing but little sweethearts. Um, I hope they stay that way too. Uh, but to keep things, I guess you know I do keep a lot of different snakes. Um, but to focus on the monitors, I would say monitors are my first love. Um, absolutely. If I had to keep one, one species, you know, it would be a monitor, uh, deciding on which one would be a little more difficult, but yeah. So I would say my, my start back into this, um, in 2018 started with, you know, a group of Ackies. I'm still keeping those, uh, two different lines of Ackies. I've been, Man, holding back a lot as of late uh, for my own purposes and really trying to set up the future uh, for myself as far as what I want future animals to look like. Your super colony. Right, you know. Um, So as I'm holding things back, you know, uh, and as they become adults, separating not only the pairs, but trying to pair animals that I really like the look of or maybe I'm, I'm can hopefully enhance some different things. And, um, other than that, it's, you know, I'm having some success with the Tristis, uh, which I absolutely love. Um, they are very unique in, and the way they yeah. look that super black tail that they can get and that, you know, that neck area going into the head. Um, some are more like maroon red, which is gorgeous. Uh, some that's, that's not orientalis. It's probably, I mean, it could be mutts, right? They could be, you know, there's some past history that, that goes along with them that started, uh, before I, I was even keeping animals. Um, so when I say, you know, Tristis, I'm just referring to kind of what we have now in the U S in the U S there's very few of the dark head specimens, right? Very, um, very few, a from what I understand, but I'll, I'll also um, say that even within a clutch, as I'm starting to notice with uh, some of the animals, um, it it does vary uh, quite a bit. Um, so I have I currently have some holdbacks that you know look like they might be in Orientalis. Um, there's no way I know the adults they came from, of course, but the variation just in color, some of these animals are displaying, you know, really yeah. nice blues and reds kind of on the, on the level of the Kimberleys. Um, and then I have other animals out of the same clutch that don't have those, those same vibrant colors. They have more of a, the black and gray and, and still, still containing some like, uh, it's more of a Brown than a red. But yeah. you know, it's, it's real interesting to see, and I'm really interested to see how they're going to continue to develop. Um, and so, if that's the case, you know, maybe I can I can try in the future to um, breed for certain looks and appearances and whatnot. But um, yeah, so yeah, I have a, I have a couple groups of those now. Um, let's see, I'm I'm working with the the clutch of Kimberleys that I was able to get. So uh long story short and full disclosure, you know, got a good clutch from a female. A Kimberly killer too. I'm a I'm a killer. <laughs> went uh went on to lose that female. Um 
she did have some some uh, egg laying complications. Uh, and then out of that, the good clutch that I got, seven great eggs, seven great babies. I have killed almost half. I'm I'm down to four. Now the four I have, I think we're over the the trouble spot. They're now I I guess you could say sub adults. Um, yeah, yes, that's all. And they're really nice too. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm in this with you, just like we've talked about. You know, it's uh it's we're gonna die trying in this world with Kimberly's. So we have a that little pact going that <laughs> we are gonna yeah. figure the species out. All of us, all of us. Right, right. And I really think it's important because um, you know, there's there the information out there is usually related to Aki's. Yeah. And you know, where Aki's that same care sheet can work across the US. And some of the stuff we talked earlier about in um, the differences where people live, um, it's not the same with, in my opinion, yeah, it's not the same yeah. with the Kims. Just as, you know, Kims are from a certain part of Australia where Aki's are in multiple parts of Australia. Right. And, and um, you know, one, one thing I really wanted to kind of put out there that what this podcast is about I want it to be as free thinking as it can, even if people aren't agreeing. Um, and like what what you're mentioning about, sorry, um, give me a second. Um, mentioning about a general rule that you can use for many lizards may still not apply to, even if they're like odd all adultery are right or all drug right. monitors like it's just not going to apply and um you want to then start to think differently or you want to apply some stuff that you haven't done before because you were just going by how someone does ackies and we're using ackies as an example because they're they're easy, easy a lot easier to breed and we already know that it's a good thing to recommend people that want to start into just getting the baselines down and having to read stuff and they're a great teacher. And so right. the Kimberleys, though, they'll teach you and die at the same time. <laughs> so, Teaching um, through death. <laughs> what I want to have people understand is if the, the, the methods for Salvatore or Aki's or any, any other varieties that was easier to breed, if it was that simple, we'd be breeding everything. Right. And we'd be having no problems breeding everything. But we can only breed maybe a third of the stuff that we are importing. If that just Salvatore. Right. And Absolutely. Argus that are still imported and people are doing tree monitors in, in, in mild numbers. But what about roughnecks or what about Dumarelli or uh, the Indicus, all of the Indicus, you know, peach mm -hmm. throats, Dorianus, tricolors, Melanus, Obar, uh, the list goes on, and so um, now monitors savannas, you know, they're uh, essentially a little bit different than doing Australian types or the Salvatores that a lot of people have been able to unlock already, you know, um, and they they take a little bit different quirks. So even though there is a, a slight general rule like having high surface temperatures or you know great nesting options. These monitors are triggered slightly different. Not all of them are just heat and feed. Not all of them are 
somewhere, you actually have to send them through a type of um, weather weather change or pressure change because the rain. You know, it's it's just how's that phenomenon looked past? You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Where it's a it's a given where man the rain just drew the sex out of my lizards, man. It just did, you know, and yep. um and it helps out it, in snakes and a lot of other stuff. It's a it's it's a thing that we kind of look forward to almost the rain, right. right? And um, you know, it's not it's again, it's not just heat them and feed them. And even though that does work, I want to admit that that does work for quite a few species. It's a good it base. For, it doesn't work for everything, and right. that's where you want to expand your thinking or you know talk to other keepers um, how they might have done it. You know, there are very, very few white throat breeders or savannah breeders, and they're very far in between. And so you have to kind of gauge people's uh, ideas and and things like that, and really work out what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm I'm having something that you haven't done before, really. I'm having some issues because um, the other the other things I keep. Well, I guess I'll go back. You know, um, I also keep. Uh, sand monitors and uh, the Affenbergi, Timorensis, uh, Similis, which are all very closely uh, related, come from Indonesia. Um, and then I have a group of blue trees uh, and a savanna monitor. I think that's it. I want to say that's it. I think you're missing something. I might be. I don't know, but we're not going to. <laughs> right. I'm sure it'll come up. Um, but, you know, the the methods for me that have worked with the uh, the Tristus, the Ackies, um, I started there as a base with the Indonesian dwarf species, and I haven't seen any eggs. I, You know, that's not true. When I first got the female, I've got a gravid female. She did lay. I went on to... Um, to murder that clutch. Well, the uh, one that I, you got for me, right? Right. Yep. Oh, yep. I, 13, yeah, you, I don't know how you did that. You know what's crazy? Huh. What was crazy is that that lizard went up and down the state in a bag for a couple of days, right? Right. It hung out at the show, hung out, and then you got it the weekend after, the, 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 the Monday after, right? Yeah. And she led then laid so that female went through all that crap and basically stress and still laid. right that was that was what shocked me the most absolutely maybe that you know maybe that's what needs to happen maybe i need to send her down to you you can ship her back to me take her to that show coming up and uh <laughs> no. you know it's uh, it's just it's just amazing like what they can go through you know right. i never yeah, I never would have expected that. So, um. and she gifted me thirteen perfect eggs. And you know, it was a it was an issue with the incubator. Um, I walked right. in one day. I was working at the warehouse the night before. Everything was fine. I walked in the next day. Uh, so there's only about twelve hours difference. But I don't know how long it was like this. But I looked at that incubator and that temperature read one thirteen, and I just about cried. Tried my best, but lost them all. And they were all good eggs, veins and all of them. Um, yeah. But, you know, that that definitely was a, a kick in the gut. But at the same time, it probably was a good thing, you know. Um, good learning. Yeah. 
learning for me for future uh, clutches of things. I haven't had an incubation air since. I've made sure uh, temps are right. I've put in place different uh, methods to safeguard methods, basically. Because, um, you know, we're not and talking those, about... Those safeguard methods is basically just prepping your electrical system and uh, your heating and cooling system up well enough, right? Right. Okay. And, you know, using, in some cases, uh, not only a, a well, using two thermostats, or I'm sorry, um, uh, yeah, thermostats yeah. to control the temps and to have basically a kill switch uh, thermostat. So if it gets above a certain degree, it just shuts everything off. Um, and that's for you, what, 105, 100? I actually, I have that set at 93 Okay. So, actually, okay. Yeah, at ninety, if it gets above ninety-three, um, it shuts off, and that's that's because the the other part at the warehouse, I'm able to set everything up. So I have an ambient that's about seventy-five that fluctuates between seventy-five and maybe eighty-five if it's the middle of the summer and in the middle of the day. Um, Winter time is set to ninety-three, though. What's that? Winter time it's set to ninety-three. Oh, just the, uh, I'm sorry, the, just to be clear, the regular, the, the first thermostat is set to 86 degrees. So that's what I'm trying to maintain. The other kill switch is set at 93. So if it goes, if it hits 93 or goes above that, it's going to just kill the power to the whole. Oh, okay. Thing. That's what I was, yeah, sorry. Thank you for no asking. Worries. I didn't want that to get confused. Uh, I don't incubate at 93 <laughs> now. And um, another thing that some people still uh, might not know about monitor eggs is uh, they take quite a, quite a while to hatch. I think the earliest clutch I had was at, I want to say 99 days. And uh, I, as of right now, still have a, a sand monitor clutch that's incubating. And I think we're around uh, the 160 day mark. Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah. Yeah. They, they go through quite a few, uh, I guess, season temperature differences just uh, in my area, you know, and I'm sure you've experienced the same. Yeah, yeah. Going into having winter clutches that go into spring, it's, uh, it's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and then having clutches that are in the incubator during mids, uh, mid and peak summer and going into fall, that's also a very hair raising time. Yeah, um, just because I gotta make sure things aren't overheating, have uh, some cool packs if I need to shove them in there. If the the the, the stuff goes out, or <clears throat> I pray it, it really doesn't, but um, you know it's it's kind of different all the time now. Uh, um, man, I, your your process though, as far as um like your your whole setup as as far as heating and cooling now how much does that kind of run you know i mean i don't want to get personal but like it runs you that right, right there runs you a pretty penny every month just to oh man uh you're gonna you're gonna make me come forward with the truth in this so yeah i mean i i have to i i, mean, I have to admit too using my ac is all the time and stuff like that is it's up there. Well, okay. I guess I'll say it. I'm spoiled. Um, as of right now, the the cost of the utilities is uh, included 
and what I pay for the monthly rent uh, okay. over at the warehouse where I. Keep. No, that's great. That's great, man. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm able to run uh, two heating units, and then um, in the summer I can get by with just using one. Basically, uh, it's a heating and air unit, and uh, one of those can cool off to where I need because I'm not. It's I found it's it's harder for me to actually keep temps up in the winter than it is for me to cool down the uh, warehouse in the summer. I can accomplish that through just, you know, uh, limiting, uh, uh, the lights and, uh, running that air, uh, a few other, you know, tricks that I've had to implement. Um, but it's much easier for me to, well, hold on. It's much easier for me to <laughs> keep the temperatures in the range where the monitors are fine. It's a different story with the snakes, however. Yeah. So, um, they but have yeah. to be kept cooler, right? The snakes. Yeah, there's there's a few things that you know I just can't keep over there. Um, so there's a few animals that I have to keep at the house. Um, you want to stay low 80s, essentially. Even lower, like the uh, the Asian rat snake, the um, oh, even okay. the even the the morning gecko colony. Um, I had a day that I think got to, or uh, I'd say a day. I had a week that got in the high 80s. They didn't like that. Um, I lost a few animals during that time. Um, so it's taught me a lot, you know, um, working in that specific environment. And um, also I, I keep things a little differently at the house. If I usually always have a group of lizards, monitor lizards at the house uh, just for us to enjoy, um, for the wife and kids to also have a part in and, uh, I have to keep them a bit different, you know, just because our we keep our house at your normal room temperatures. Yeah. Um, and seventies and sixties, right? Right. And so, and I also keep them in a, a full glass enclosure so that we can enjoy seeing the animals. But with that, I also have to set up the, the heating elements, the lighting different. Um, so, yeah. you know, all these things to consider. I think, I think that's something we talked about a lot and that we really want to get out to people is, uh, and you've touched on it a little bit is there's multiple right ways. Yeah. What, you, what you're really looking for and what I hope to touch on throughout this process and in, in these podcasts with you is just the fact that um, it's, it's up to you, the keeper to think on your feet and, and, provide an animal what it needs. And we say, you know, heat and food, um, those are your, your basic things, uh, for a lot of reptiles, but talking monitors specifically, um, you got to learn how to offer those, those, um, items to, to your animal. And that might be a little different in your situation. You know, if you're in Southern Florida, uh, you might not, you know, you could keep them outside or um, you might not need to run the lights all the time. It's just going to be maybe hot at certain times in the house. The humidity is going to be great. If you're in uh, North Dakota, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to be in the heater. Right? <laughs> but at the same time, the humidity is going to be about zero and, you yeah. know, you're really going to dry them out. So you got to you got to adapt. It's up to you, the keeper. Um, care sheets are great. They're a great starting point. But you have to be able to look at your animal and first recognize what your animal should be doing, you know, from its attitudes. Uh, right. Behaviors the, and stuff. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so no, hopefully, no. 
Oh, sorry, man. Uh, keep going. Oh, no, I was just saying, hopefully we can help people and help ourselves in this process to really learn how to adapt and think on our feet um, yeah. and notice problems and, and, and make the changes necessary uh, for the benefit of the animal. Yeah, that's a, you know, since we're still sort of still on the topic, um, for me, that was a, a thing before as uh, I would, I wasn't paying, I mean, even though I would pay attention a little bit to outside surrounding temperatures or surrounding humidity that, it, you know, not, not within my enclosure or not even within the room, but outside or, you know, right. just what it typically makes the house as well. Um, what I was doing before, I was basically struggling with heating, not the fact that I was having issues heating. It was more of the fact of it would just work from just the temperature controller, but I didn't have anything controlling the room. So everything was just still so hot, you know? Right. And, um, then sure. The, the, the actual lamps would turn off and it'd be a average hot. It's not maybe too crazy, but that was in the Bay area where it only got to nineties and maybe 105 for one day. But where I'm at now is 115 for, multiple days possibly a few weeks of spread out temperatures like that and um i really couldn't sit them like that and so having a controlled a whole controlled room is gonna be a be a major game changer or key factor in how your animals do um you know just overall stresses from either much too much too cold or way too hot and um, right. that that for me has been a big thing. Dave, Dave Arbonowicz actually, you know, really made sure that uh, he was uh, emphasizing that for me as as far as getting getting my own animals to uh, be at a constant, not have to go through such crazy temperature changes, and where the room I can control it and essentially then the lamps all worked really in my favor without having to kick off and on too much. Now in, uh, for example, how that was working against me. Sure. It was helping me save my animals by not overheating, but it would make basking such irregular. It right. turned off lamps so much and uh, <clears throat> nothing was uh, a set time anymore. It'd just be the, the cooling times after the peak hours that the lamps would kick on and um, I'd have uh, somewhat issues of then having to turn stuff only on at nighttime because during the day it was just so blistering hot. Right. And um, then they were super hot. And at the same time having to be heated at nighttime when they would typically cool down. So what I'm doing this year is having my room controlled a little bit more. So it's going to be, uh, 70s, low 80s, anything higher than that is, uh, you know, the AC is going to definitely already be on. And so um, the lamps are going to be on during the daytime now. And then they're going to still have an absolute cool time at nighttime because that's what I was taking away from them this last year before was having them hot during the daytime because it was just so hot and then still hot at nighttime when they should be cool. Right, because I was trying to accommodate to give them still basking times. Now, um, you know how all this stuff 
kind of just correlates together. It just, uh, I was trying to read my animals and that's where I was just picking up all of, all of this, man. They were just so stressed out, not even really wanting to breed or do much or eat a lot either. And they would really do nothing the whole day. Maybe come out to bass for a tiny bit, but not do anything. And then I try to come up with what I can do to make the enclosure, I guess, a little bit more, um, I mean, straight up just cooler, but more so comfortable for them. And I I had to work with, with no longer 90s and high 90s unless it was just right around the basking area. But everything else was high 70s, low 80s. And that's what I've been working with for this whole winter. And they're much more active, you know, much more like as they're eating more. I mean, more. I'm sorry, as they're more active, they're eating a little bit more, being able to burn some of that weight off, staying yeah. a little bit more slim um, just because they're still going and they're not overheated. And uh, that uh, AC unit set up controlling the whole room at a certain temperature has been a key factor to me not having things overheat and uh, overstress and not breed man as we're talking about this as you're saying some things you know it just really uh there's gonna be so much to talk about really i'm i'm really looking forward to it because um you know we could talk about the the more tropical island species um monitors that come from different parts of Asia that do experience, you know, um, different seasons, but not to the same degree as the Australian counterparts and, uh, you know, how that might affect how we keep them over here in captivity. And, um, you know, we, we've talked personally over the phone, just the different, uh, ideas we throw around as far as cooling and, um, um, offering that to certain animals. Um, but also, you know, as, as we go through this and gain more experience, um, you know, what, what has been successful for us and what you're seeing, just as you're explaining the things you've been seeing now with reading your animals, you know, uh, just really excited that we get to kind of document this in a, in a podcast and see where all this stuff goes too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually I'm really excited, man. And, uh, I want to just get through whatever, you know, um, just initial quirks that we might have, and I mean, really, it's a lot of lot of lot of a lot of good meat within each conversation. So, right, um, yeah, it's uh it's that's good. Already, man. already, we have. You know, we've covered quite a few things and we're just we're getting ourselves off the ground, uh, feeling this out as well, uh, being this first episode. But um, I mean, there's so many things we've already covered that we can really pick apart, go into detail. And yeah, um, what I can do is uh, I mean, I don't know. If, I don't know if you want to conclude this or whatever, but um, what I wanted to do is just go over previous stuff kind of dissect it some more and yeah. build from there. Yeah. I guess, you know, just like, a, just like a ball player studying their last plays or studying, you know, how they messed up or how they can improve. Um, that's just what we're going to be doing is um, 
looking what we did, what we're going to do better to the next one. And um, hopefully everybody tunes in with uh, every 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 chance that they can get to pay attention to what we're trying to say. And, um, you know, and this is uh, one of those things I wanted to bring up too, where the, the idea of this place was to not just be about us blabbering or bringing on other people to blabber, but we want the beginners to come and blabber too. So, <laughs> right. um, you know, if you are um, listening and you got a ton of questions and you just uh, are are interested in learning them more, um, whether you keep them or not, or whether you're failing with them or not. And um, this is something where we'd love uh, you to come and interact with us and, and join if you feel like it only because it is not just to reach out to you and it also teaches us um, just what some of these people are going through, but there are going to be hundreds and possibly thousands of people that can relate to you. And so if you're able to, you know, um, put yourself in the hot seat a little bit and uh, you know, want to have a Q and a with us a little bit on, on just the stuff that you want to know or stuff that we, we may even want to pick apart as far as what you're going through. Um, someone else can really possibly gather a good amount of information from that. And um, although it does help out, you know, the, the person greatly, the animal is at the end of the day is what we're trying to reach. And the mass amount of people having, having failures is still there. And so right. we want to, want to help out with uh, that it's going to be hard because i mean not 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 to make animals sound like they're disposable because they're not but um i've had to kill a few animals accidentally to learn to know what i know and, <laughs> and you may you may have to do that too just maybe we should uh it's kind of the name of the game i, I don't want to make it sound like animals dying is okay because it's not but we want to make it where our our arrow trials are less, less drastic. Right. Yeah. yeah. We, sh- we could have a whole show on just how we have killed monitors. I'm sure <laughs> all the uh, failures and, you know, go over what's sitting in my freezer right now. And uh... yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff that are just buried in the, just buried in the yard. Cause you know, <laughs> that time <laughs> I never put them in a jar. They're just now uh, buried. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's, it's uh it's a learning thing and it it does it does suck it is a sour part of the game um and it can be actually i would say spirit breaking right but if you're able to pick yourself up and kind of uh dust yourself off a little bit there are more lizards that you can fail better with and then hopefully you know succeed as you as you get there this right. isn't a thing where you're not gonna you're you can listen to this all you want but until you p- apply this year after year after season after season animal after animal and you know this is just going to be words to you you know and um the application and and all that stuff like that takes a lot of error trial and sometimes man we, we do a lot more failing than succeeding you know yep May our failures be shared lessons yeah. for everybody. Um, yeah. And, you know, to go a little further on that, um, we really want this to be a place for people to come together uh, without that, you know, judgment you see a lot online, uh, different social media places. 
Um, we're all in this together. Uh, we're all trying to learn how to do this and we're all at different points in this, uh, experience. So, um, you know, we're, we're going to bring on different people. Some people have been keeping for years, um, and have a lot of experience, much more than I've probably, you know, than you and I together, uh, by far. And we definitely want to hear from the beginner keepers or even people that just want to get into it, uh, that don't actually have an animal yet. And some of these questions, and like you said, hopefully we can help, um, fill in some gaps and get you started in the right direction. Uh, and really have to think on your feet as far as, uh, keeping a monitor lizard, you know? Yep. Um, now, I mean, I guess, uh, want to, should we work on closing it out a little bit? Yeah, or, I guess that's yeah. enough for now. Yeah, right. one in the bag. So, <laughs> you know, um, man, I, uh, not not just you, but uh, we want to thank everybody that's been able to work with us to put this together. Um, I think a lot of people are rooting for us and um, cheering us on as far as getting this started. And we just want to work through stuff. Uh, eventually, we'll put stuff out there. But, you know, feedback is is great. Um interest and absolutely and all that stuff like that is uh gonna be what we are gonna be thriving off the most really and um and if people are are interested in coming on um you know even before we go out and start asking um it's kind of a, a sort of open you know once we get a few episodes out there we get our our uh, little smaller details worked out and you know it'll be uh it'll be a, a fun thing i hope i really hope it to be Right. And so go ahead and um, any, any, you know, suggestions, any questions out there that you might have um, any comments, go ahead and send those to Kai. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can free. send those to me and then I'll direct them to, to <laughs> no, feel free to send them to, to both of us. And uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, other than that, Kai, where can people find you right now? Um, people can find me mostly on Facebook and Instagram. Um, on Facebook, it's just Kai Fan, K H A I space Fan, P H A N as in Nancy, and um, and yeah, man, uh, they can find me there. And I'm also on Instagram at uh, Big Lizard One O Three. It's Big B I G underscore Lizard One, the letter O, the number three at yahoo.com i'm oh, sorry at yeah yahoo.com um or that's just, that's just also my handle as well all um, right and then uh i'm also on uh youtube and other stuff like that but we can get into all that stuff later um you can look up mangrove mecca um and but i those are it's a resurrected youtube that i really only been putting a couple videos on there as of the last few months but prior to that i wasn't doing anything for 10 years so you can <laughs> you can get an idea on how resurrected that is um, <laughs> you know i really just skipped the whole generation of youtube and just joined way later when i could have been practicing like the whole time or something you know but um, right yeah right. now i'm just a noob trying to keep up with youtube stars and yeah <laughs> um and and I mean, uh, Alan's uh, available on um, on on what Instagram and um, yep, 
You can Facebook find me and... on on Facebook at Origins with an S Reptile with no S uh, on Facebook, and then Origins underscore Reptile on Instagram. Um, I'm also on there under you know my name, but I usually reserve the the Facebook page just for uh, the close family and friends and whatnot, just to try to keep some separation. You know, um, it's not going to work anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's all just going to merge together. People will be impatient. They're going to hit you up on your page. Right. Things like that. Or you'll mess up and just, yeah, you just, <laughs> just share on both. It's yeah. already happening. But, you know, yeah. I wanted to, I mean, before we exit this one, how did you come up with your name? I always ask that every single time I look at it. Um, how did you come up with Origins? Oh, man. Okay, let's, I guess, um, you know, I think as we experience just trying to name this podcast, picking a name, coming <laughs> up with a name is is difficult, you know? Yeah, um, I had to change three names before I came up with Mangrove Mecca. And it just like, and it just hit me like, all right, I guess that's kind of what I do here. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so for me, I guess, long story short, um, there was a lot of things happening at once. Not only was I getting back into reptiles um, with uh, not only monitors, but carpet pythons that really, you know, was a great opportunity um, that was starting off. Uh, I was in a whole new direction um, as far as my, my personal life that was starting off. Um, my wife, super supportive of, you know, the animals, she helps me take care of the animals when she can. Uh, she's honestly a godsend as far as uh, the amount of support that she has provided me in getting back into this. Um, but also starting um, same same career, but starting in a new area. Um, it was just a lot of new things happening at once. And, uh, you know, with all these beginnings happening, it just seemed like origins fit and then reptile because i had no direction i wanted you know I, I there's so many different things out there that i want so i wanted to kind of cover whatever the right whatever the future might be so just yeah. that that's kind of how it came together as origins nice, reptile man. nice man that's good that's, that's good to know and how did you get the uh the name kai that's uh i'm kidding man <laughs> How did you come you up know, with that name? No, it's not. It's not even my first name. <laughs> I know that you don't have to share. <laughs> Actually, people will see me. People will see it though. People will see it whenever. Whenever you guys PayPal me, you'll see my name, my real name, come up, and that's a secret for you to find out. Right. So if you want to send me a dollar to find out my real name, we can do that. Right. You're not getting scammed. <laughs> I, I had to message Kai. I was like, "Who is this person?" He's like, "No, it's not a scam. That's me." <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, but I do believe, you know, touching on names, I, I think it was uh, John that uh, kind of uh, nicknamed you IndyKai, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Was that the yeah. one that that was the favorite that stuck? Yeah, that's the favorite <laughs> that stuck because you know people call me so many things, and uh, you know, it's, I I uh, I take it to uh, I mean not 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 taking it to the heart at all, like bad, but um, I cherish what people call me. You know, I really right. you know. I admire what they say and um but i just want to be called kai you know or indica is fine but yeah i don't want to be called like god or some goat or anything like i'm not i really am not and i'm just uh just a guy trying to take care of his lizards the best way he can you know and 
I just happen to be doing somewhat well. <laughs> not killing as many as you used to. <laughs> yeah, not killing as many as I used to. And don't get me wrong, man. I've killed quite a few. It sucks. Right. Even last year, even last year, one I had a female just got too fat and had uh, issues digesting. She just had food, food rotting in her man, and right. I really, uh, really, really, really had to swallow that one. I still am swallowing that one right now. So, oh man. And so I have, I have her offspring, and I have, um, I have, uh, and other customers have her offspring. So, uh, I still have that line and her part of her alive still. So, I can really, I can keep, I can keep things going if, if, if you want to say it that way. Right. Uh, yeah. We should maybe add in a couple of animal animal loss in in uh grief shows <laughs> yeah i mean just Support group the, for the uh, people out there just uh more so of the danger like man right. it's, it's like you can end up one day waking up you go to your cage and you then have to figure out a million questions on what if you know oh yeah yeah and that never changes we'll, nope. we'll continue to do that but all right yeah let's uh i guess wrap it up at this point point. and again uh, we just want to say thank you to uh morelia python radio network and uh eric burke for his assistance uh with getting this started um also you know the trust that comes with it and being under the umbrella so to speak um and we want to actually encourage the listeners out there to go ahead and check out uh, NPR, the Morelia Python Network, all the different shows. Uh, there's some really good guys doing some good stuff out there uh, all over the reptile hobby and talking about various things. So you can find something else you're interested in. Um, dogs start barking. I guess that's my cue, you know. Oh, and their their Patreon, you know, go on and find their Patreon um, to help support what's going on. And to support the shows, uh, the ability to bring new people on, new content, and new new offerings to the listeners out there. Well, we really appreciate you guys for coming on and listening and paying attention. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good one. Bye.